0: Welcome once again to another edition of Strange Planet, and it is more than you can imagine, a strange planet. And if you'd like to get a little bit deeper into Strange Planet and this podcast, why not consider becoming a premium subscriber? And it's real easy to do. Just click on the link in the episode notes, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. There are three monthly subscriber tiers or packages to choose from choose the one that right that's uh, right for you you gain access to commercial free listening uh, bonus episodes that are produced exclusively for premium subscribers and you also get a subscription to my monthly newsletter inner sanctum strange planet dot dot fm i hope you'll check it out all right on this edition the bank of international settlements Think of it as the central bank of central banks what do they do there what are they up to we're also going to talk about what the bank of international settlements may have to do with the um the coming destruction of the world economy and uh we're going to talk with the uh writer the author of a brand new book it's coming out shortly it's called Quas, and um sort of exploring the worlds of finance and fiction. Mel Madison is a writer, founder, and fintech executive. Uh, His debut novel I just mentioned, Quaz, will be published in early 2024 by Post Hill Press, distributed by Simon & Schuster, promising to uh, deliver an epic thrill ride packed with action, intrigue, and a healthy dose of economic realism. And uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome Mel Madison to Strange Planet hey Mel, how
2: are you? great thanks for having me Richard.
0: just give us um, a bit of your your background. I know you uh, you graduated with a uh, a master's in business Administration from Duke University um, you've uh, been the CEO of uh, a number of um, large corporations Just tell us a little
2: bit more about what you did in the financial world Sure. so uh been working in financial services industry. Since late 1990s, early 2000s, worked for a number of firms, including large established firms, such as uh, Russell Investments in Seattle, manages somewhere north of a quarter trillion dollars to smaller fintech startup firms. Uh, Those were the firms where I served as CEO of the broker-dealer entity, so the regulated entity under the SEC, um, and FINRA here in the United States for three different venture capital-funded firms, uh, and as you mentioned, I have my MBA in investment and corporate finance from Duke. So I've worked in basically all aspects of asset management, managing money, compliance, private placements, uh, accredited investment deals, um, the full-spectrum private equity of uh, the financial services landscape. All right, so let's talk about the new
0: novel, Quaz. Uh, you've described this, uh, or your publisher has described this as a quantum Oz, as in the, you know, the Wizard of Oz. What does that
2: mean, a quantum Oz? Mm-hmm. Sure, so it has a literal meaning. It has a little bit of a metaphorical meaning. Uh, literally, in the novel, uh, there's a, a chamber at the Bank for International Settlements, essentially an entire subfloor where this quantum AI supercomputer called Icarus is housed. And in the novel, which is set in the near future, 2027, quantum AI, quantum computing has merged with AI to essentially take control of the the world's stock markets. And uh, quantum computing is something that requires a whole special set of an environment. So most of the uh, kind of prototype stuff that's around now, you have to actually cool down the uh, core to near absolute zero uh just above celsius and so there's a there's a special green neon lighting in this chamber that houses icarus in the novel and the people that work there uh, kind of lovingly not so lovingly refer to it as Quas, as in quantum oz and uh, on the metaphorical level it's a little bit of a uh homage to l frank baum the great writer of the wizard of oz uh who many people don't realize really crafted a monetary allegory in the wizard of oz with the yellow brick road referencing the gold standard in the book uh dorothy doesn't wear ruby slippers she wears silver shoes and there was a big debate at that time about what should money be in the us should it just be the gold standard or should it be gold and silver Uh, williams Jennings bryant gave his famous cross of gold speech in the democratic convention in the I believe that was 1898 or so and so in the novel uh the Emerald City is really a fraud and it's a little bit of a representation of the greenback and the dollar and there's a whole lot of other you know sort of monetary elements to The Wizard of Oz that people don't know and I thought that somehow tying in that uh Oz connection to my book might be a little bit of a, a nice way to uh not only uh, title the book but a little bit of tribute to uh frank baum
0: the um the decision to remove uh gold as the underpinning of the us dollar which i guess was kind of done at two stages one under roosevelt and then later under nixon um mm-hmm. are we um at the same type of crossroads now where w- w- they were then talking about you know removing or getting rid of the gold standard. And now we're talking about moving into a digital uh, central
2: bank, digital currency.
0: Mm. Is it the same type of thing that we're talking about?
2: I think on one hand it is. Um, On the other hand, it's, it's a little bit different, but I do think you're right to think about a lot of what's happening now to have certain similarities to the 1920s, of what eventually led up to Roosevelt uh, issuing the, I believe it's Executive Order 6102, which prohibited the private ownership of gold. And essentially he, he confiscated the gold and you know he needed to juice the money supply really in the United States. And just like we've done with the financial crisis, crisis, just like we've done with COVID, where we've massively inflated the money supply by printing treasury, at the time of the gold standard, there wasn't a way to print more gold. So Roosevelt confiscated gold, which was trading, I believe, around twenty dollars an ounce. Took it all in from the population, made it illegal for Americans to hold gold, and then changed the price to thirty-five. So an immediate increase in the money supply, while still remaining uh, at least nominally on the gold standard. Then you're right; it was later, after the obviously the the post World War II economic conference, Bretton Woods put into place a new uh, gold standard. It's, it's what economists call a gold exchange standard, where every major currency was pegged and tied to the US dollar. And then the dollar was supposed to be backed by 35, uh, or every $35 were supposed to be backed by an ounce of gold. And of course, when Nixon um, took us off of that in the, in the 70s, uh, when France was attempting to essentially trade in francs for dollars for gold, and was going to to wipe out all the gold the US had, Uh, you know, we saw gold immediately, you know, go up 10 times fold. And then, you know, in in recent times, we've seen it, you know, go up 10 times again. So here we are now over, excuse me, over $2,000 an ounce. And I think probably going higher, um, at least in the medium and long-term, it's tough for anyone to predict what's gonna happen next week. But I think the long-term trajectory is just this uh, addiction to cheap money and printing money. And there's not really any way that you can, uh, in the United States or in other developed economies, whether it's Canada or Europe, uh, fund, continue funding at the level that we are without beginning to issue more and more debt, debt greater than the growth rate of our GDP. And once you do that, it's just a spiral. It's the same thing that happened to the Romans. You can look at, as they got closer and closer to the downfall, their coins, their denarii having less and less silver and gold content in them. So this inflationary trajectory that we're on, I think we just got a taste of it in the last couple of years. And while things might seem to be getting under control now, uh, it's inevitable that this is going to come back uh, again and probably in a much harsher form. Um, In Quaz, you mentioned
0: this um, AI um, program, uh, Icarus. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, we know Icarus from Greek mythology, uh, Icarus flew too close to the sun and his wax wings melted and he fell to earth. So Icarus is sort of designed ostensibly to prevent sort of the volatility in the market and and to provide some stability, uh, which is the same thing that was promised with the introduction of the um, US Federal Reserve, um, that, there, you know, we wouldn't have this, these endless cycles of boom and bust um, so, is Icarus really kind of a metaphor
2: for the introduction of the the um, U.S. Federal Reserve? Yes, and more broadly, a metaphor for economists and politicians to attempt to manage economies um, and, in a way, exert control over economies and through control of the economy, control over the populace. And so, it, it is a it is a manifestation of that uh, in modern form and um in the novel it it, it's really an attempt uh behind the scenes to take it you know one step further and and manipulate icarus and um crashing the markets basically so that uh you know the reserve status of the dollar can be replaced with a with a global digital currency and i'm not giving away too much in the book the readers find that out in the beginning it's an interesting story and the hero uh rory o'connor uh, gets help from some unlikely sources, but essentially it's a it's a fight against what I call the deep economic state. So um, you know, the, there's this whole cabal of central bankers, of people at organizations like the Bank for International Settlements, uh, the IMF, the World Bank, um, that these globalists that have been on this massive project. Uh, of which the, the the BIS, I'll refer to it sometimes, Bank for International Settlements, was massively involved in the creation of the European Union, the release of the euro, the consolidation of currencies, the taking away of the sovereign powers of nations to print and coin money. Um, all of these things are just part and parcel of this globalist agenda that goes all the way back to the 1930s, the founding of the BIS. And obviously, even before that, as you rightly mentioned, with the Federal Reserve Act, of 1913, um, which was put in after a, a group of bankers met in Jekyll Island, Georgia, and essentially came out of it and they wanted to put it in place. They couldn't, the president wouldn't do it. Um, they found a governor in New Jersey by the name of Woodrow Wilson, who, who needed some help. And within a year of him taking office, uh, the Federal Reserve Act was signed. Uh, his major backers were of course, those people uh, that were meeting on that island in Georgia. So the book was is
0: while it's a work of fiction, you're really you're you're, you're trying to warn the public of, about what's coming right? And it's difficult to tell that in, in nonfiction because it ends up being kind of turgid and wonky. So you mm-hmm. you know you want if you want to give people the truth, there's an old saying I think it was Marshall McLuhan. We, we tell each other the truth through movies, we lie to each other through television. you're, you're trying to, present what's what's on the what we're facing here what's staring us down
2: in a work of fiction exactly uh we're, we're facing it on many fronts this is the economic version of it uh there's other versions of it in different spheres but of course the economy uh the old saying money makes the world go round you know the, the one there's a couple of quotes i put in the beginning of the book one of them is from thomas jefferson which is banking establishments are more dangerous than standing armies. I've quoted and, that many times. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a great one, and the and the other one was from uh, attributed to Rothschild that you know give me control of a nation's money, I care not who makes its laws. And I think that a lot of this, which is really interesting to me too, and I try to in an entertaining way include little snippets in the book that also educate the reader a little bit about how a lot of this is is actually not brand new there were fights for example in the founding you know the Hamiltonian uh wanting a central bank in the united states and and jefferson and and his idea of not wanting the stock jobbers to take control of things and of course we had a central bank in the u.s for 20 years the charter expired Um, we had a second central bank uh, that Andrew Jackson said enough is enough. He paid off all of the debt, got rid of it, and the United States did not have a central bank for quite some time until, until 1913 um, when the Federal Reserve came into existence. So this battle of understanding that control uh, of the money supply and the bankers essentially being put into a position of power uh, over the economy and is, is something that's been central, a central fight for uh, developing countries for for hundreds of years and I think with technology and that's really where the tech angle to to quaz comes in they're getting a whole new set of tools in their control and manipulation toolbox that they're now looking to roll out and the central bank digital currency is just a premier example of that and the bank for international settlements is on the Forefront of it and um, you know I could go on more about what they're planning
0: well yeah let's why don't we first
2: uh, I'll get you to give us
0: kind of a crash course in the history of the Bank of International Settlements. I mean, because we talk obviously on this program and others on about, you know, secret societies, and we talk about the Bilderbergs, and we talk about now late now everyone's talking about the World Economic Forum in Davos. But uh, as you pointed out, you know, little attention has been paid to the Bank of International Settlements, the central bank of all central banks. So just tell us a little bit
2: about its founding, what its purpose was. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. So it, May 17th, 1930, it was established and there were troubles uh, collecting reparation payments from Germany after World War I. So the Allied powers, France, US basically, Britain, England, were Belgium were due payments, they weren't able to collect it. And so a mechanism was created to essentially facilitate uh, settlement payments, international settlements from Germany uh, in accordance with the Versailles Treaty to, to the Allies now this 1930 happened to be right around the uh, great depression and the and the market crashes and it was only a year or two that essentially germany was unable to continue to make any of those payments and so while the bank was set up for that um as happens with any bureaucratic international organization they need to they, they they need to continue the organization and so it's had a metamorphosis a number of times into different incarnations and it's it served throughout the decades as um, a central bank for central banks, as a controller of gold price, as a uh, controller of currency exchange uh, during World War II. Uh, it was one of the only places where both allied and access leaders met on a regular basis. So you had Switzerland, uh, the only neutral country. Um, there and, and the BIS operated throughout World War II. Um, and the, the the BIS, it this is incredible, but it's an international organization. It's like a secretive economic version of the UN. But until very recently, they actually had uh um many public publicly available shares that, that you could own. This was like a for-profit organization. Um, last year they profited over $700 dollars, and the owners of the bank um When it was founded, shares of the bank were given to the central banks in Europe that were a part of it. And the Federal Reserve did not want, the US did not want to have the ownership in this thing in the Federal Reserve. But in reality, what happened was for the United States, they took those shares and guess who they gave them to? JP Morgan, um, First National Bank of Chicago, which is now essentially part of Bank of America, and so you look at who owns this international organization it's it's central banks it's um essentially a for-profit entity behind the scenes but they're also manipulating all of these currencies so um just one quick example of for example in world war II, uh you know when hitler invaded Czechoslovakia um well maybe i should take one one step back here really quick to just say like central bank for central banks so when you think about uh, a central bank, let's say um, a central bank of, Aust- of Czechoslovakia, for example, they have a lot of gold, and they, if they have foreign currency needs or other things, they might want to get a, say, British pounds or French francs back in the day. And they would store that gold with the BIS. And all of these central banks would store the gold with the BIS. What this allowed was if Austria wanted to buy French francs, the gold could be with the BIS, and they could just enter on their ledger, switch this bar of gold from being Czechoslovakian gold to French gold. Rather and than moving, is, yeah, rather than, rather than loading it on gold, a truck and carting mm-hmm. it from
0: Czechoslovakia to some other place, it's, yeah, I mean, this is actually, it's interesting, this was the original um, banking system sort of as devised by the Knights Templar. Where they held all the gold, and you basically could get a written note saying, you know, rather than, you know, travel along a a road with a a bag full of gold and risk being, you know, robbed and murdered, you just had a piece of paper saying, this is how much gold I have, and the Knights Templar were storing it. So the Bank of International Settlements was the central repository of all of the world's gold, um, and the countries would trade uh, or or purchase foreign currency via gold through this Bank of International Settlements. Do I have that down? You have it
2: almost perfect. Uh, It is exactly that in that it's a modern day Knights Templar. The one thing is that they would store large, huge chunks of the gold and they would store it in their own vaults and also in the vaults of the National Bank of Switzerland, the Swiss Central Bank. But the other thing that they did was they didn't need to actually have all the gold in Switzerland. They could leave a big chunk of the gold in England, in London with the bank of England and in the federal reserve, uh, bank of New York, but the federal reserve and bank of New York and the bank of England did not own the gold. The BIS owned the gold. And then the BIS had their own sub accounts. So, uh, this goes to the 1940 example or 1939 example, um, maybe it's 38 or 39, when Hitler goes into Czechoslovakia. 38, yeah. And and the, the Czechs have a ton of gold that Hitler wants to fuel his Third Reich war machine. Well, he's invaded Czechoslovakia, and Czechoslovakia thinks, ha-ha, Hitler, you're not going to get your hands on our gold. We don't have it. It's under the control of the Bank for International Settlements, who happens to have it being stored in their name with the Bank of England. Uh, well, Hitler sends in some thugs and has some guys force under duress um, from the Czech National Bank, uh, ordering the BIS to sign that gold over to uh, Germany, to the Reichsbank. And they hoped that somebody at the BIS would understand this was being done under duress and that the allied powers, especially in England, would not actually give gold to Hitler. uh, But The Bank for International Settlements with their non-political globalist agenda did not see it that way. And they actually approved the transfer in their sub-account. They then transferred it um, via the Bank of England into the Reichsbank's account. The Reichsbank then said, we actually want the physical gold because they knew at one point they'd need the actual physical and so the Bank for International Settlements, which also has vaults that it controls everywhere, it had another big stash of gold in Holland in in Amsterdam. They then uh, manipulate on their ledgers so that now the Reichsbank owned this gold in Holland, and then Holland literally shipped the the truckloads of Czech gold to the Reichsbank to to fund uh, you know World War Two. Yeah, I've heard the, uh,
0: the Bank of International Settlements being described as Hitler's personal ATM. Uh, we'll come back more of my conversation with Mel Madison, the author of Quas, as we discuss the Bank of International Settlements. Stay with us. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the Dead Files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love Tales of the Paranormal, but if you want more... Happy price! Go to your happy price, price line! Oh, oh, oh,
1: O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart the professional parts people. Oh, oh, Truth will set you free, 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 free. But first, it will really
0: tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. We're here with Mel Madison, and his uh, forthcoming book is called Quas. It's a financial thriller. And uh, he is a writer, founder, and fintech executive. And um, the new book will be out in uh, early 2024. Um, so, we were talking about the origins of the uh, Bank of International Settlements, and as you say, they are apolitical. Um, so, what are they? What is their purpose now? Uh, what, and, and why are they so keen? Well, let's handle that question first, and then we'll get into the central bank digital currency. What are they? What is their stated purpose now?
2: Mm, their stated purpose is essentially to foster international financial cooperation and to act as the central bank for central banks. And they're involved in financial stability measures, the Financial Stability Board, the Basel Accord, setting bank standards, capitalization standards, and then they continue to act as the central bank for central bank. However, it is very difficult to understand and know exactly everything that they're involved with. They have been granted immense, Powers and authorities; they they're essentially a sovereign uh, entity. the The property in Basel, Switzerland, where they're headquartered, has the same sovereign status as an embassy. When uh, managers of the bank travel internationally, they can use diplomatic pouches. The F- Swiss authorities cannot go onto the Bank of International Settlements uh, property in Switzerland without permission. They they essentially have all of the earmarks almost of an economic Vatican city. And when you say they're the central bank of the central
0: banks, let's just unpack that. What does that mean in practical terms? I guess we need to define what a central
2: bank does first. Mm -hmm. Sure, so the the primary, there, there there's regulatory aspects to a central bank, such as, you know, supervising the banking system or allegedly just as they did such a fabulous job during the financial crisis with subprime loans. And just as they kept such a great eye on Silicon Valley bank here in the United States, um, with their, uh, issues with treasuries, uh, mark to market. But basically there's the regulatory component, but the component that's kind of most interesting really is the monetary component or the control of the money supply and so the central bank it was really created as a way to attempt to try to smooth out those boom and bust cycles so the thinking was when the economy is slowing down we need to juice it a little bit and add more money sloshing around to generate economic activity and so the central bank can turn on the money spigots And if the economy is overheating or inflation is getting out of control, they can turn down those spigots. And so basically they can can do it that way. And the way they really do that um, is through two mechanisms, the the interest rate mechanism, uh, which is essentially the cost of money. They can make money cheap or free, or they can make it expensive. And then uh, their newest tool in the toolkit that came into vogue after the financial crisis, quantitative easing, which is a fancy financial term for essentially printing money. And the way that happens is a government like the United States issues treasuries and the Federal Reserve creates the money out of ones and zeros on a computer in New York and buys say a trillion dollars worth of those treasuries. And now a trillion more US dollars has entered the money supply. Right, and so um, the
0: bank of um, or the US Federal Reserve, the chairman is um, appointed, I believe by the president, um, uh, mm-hmm. so there's, they're kind of at arm's length. They have considerable autonomy, uh, but it is supposedly, I guess, ostensibly beholden to the, you know, the, the interests of the United States. Um, but the member, uh, the members of the bank of international settlements, they're all of the, they're the chairmen of all of the world banks around the world, right? So, exactly. so then the chairman of the, U.S. Federal Reserve, and I guess the chairman of the um, um, the Bank of Canada, um, they're going to these secret meetings of the Bank of International Settlements. What are they being told to do or what are they agreeing to do?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there, there's a hierarchy at the Bank for International Settlements. So initially it was very Eurocentric. It, um, it's become more global in recent decades, but there's three um major meetings that are held every two months in Basel. Uh, The first is the most exclusive meeting. It's called the ECC or the Economic Consultative Committee. And and this is essentially your G20 more or less. So here you're going to have the United States. You're going to have the European uh, Central Bank Chief Christine Lagarde, uh, Jay Powell, the head of the Bank of Canada, the head of the Bank of Japan, the head of the People's Bank of China. Um, so you, it's just like during World War II where you had these adversarial powers coming together in Basel to coordinate action, today you do as well. Um, and so you have this ECC meet and what they do is they decide what do we want to do globally? What do we want to essentially um, uh, kind of flush out there to the rest of the world from a monetary standpoint, uh, capitalization of bank standpoint? And then they transmit that into something called the GEM or the Global Economic Meeting, which includes a broader group of banks, um, another 20 or so banks. And then there's finally a third meeting called the AG or the All Governors Meeting, where all 63 member banks, and by the time you get to there, you're now talking about 95% of the world's population and GDP. and, and coming out of these meetings, the agenda that's set in the ECC, essentially the lower banks are told, you know, what the program is, and then they disperse from there and they make that policy happen in their respective countries. Um, that's, there's something in the United States called the Logan's Act where,
0: you know, you're not allowed to make, if you're a, um, I guess a citizen, you're not allowed to go abroad and and enter into agreements uh, without authorization from, you know, the president or various branches of government, aren't the, I mean, these banks, these governors are making policies um, not at the behest of the Canadian government or the United States government. I mean, isn't that
2: illegal? Mm -hmm. Yes, it it is illegal in the sense that if there was a way to kind of technically tie these down and call them you know, written agreements, um, I, I think you could have something there from a legal standpoint. But this goes back to the entire secrecy. The, these are international meetings where there's no press invited, they're behind closed doors, there is no minutes of the meetings even kept. So not only do they not release minutes, like the Federal Reserve meets and they take minute meetings or minutes of the meeting and then a few weeks later they release those minutes so that everybody can hear what this member said what that member said and the market can can react to it these meetings are completely secret the idea is this is completely clandestine and a lot of the real agenda setting um it happens on sunday night so after the ecc meets um, at around 6.30, 7.30 at night on Sunday. And then they retire to their 18th floor dining room, which is this opulent place designed by the same architects that did the Bird's Nest Stadium in, in China. Uh, they get fancy, amazing meals. And they, they talk about, let's get take an example, say in the financial crisis, they might talk about, all right, when all of our us banks have our next meetings, we need to be aggressive about interest rate cuts. Uh, we need to really stoke the, stoke the money supply. Or um, one country could talk kind of off the record, say to the United States, and say, uh, you know, uh, a country like let's say Turkey could say to, to the central bank chief could say to Jerome Powell, "We're in a we're hurting in a big way. We need dollars." And Jerome Powell, without spooking the market, could authorize um, currency swaps so that he could say, okay, we're gonna take a bunch of Turkish lira, which is the currency in Turkey, and we're gonna give you dollars so that you have dollars for your economy. And in this way, they're able to do all of these things without the market scrutiny, the press scrutiny, a very undemographic uh, or undemocratic, um, untrans- non-transparent way. So um, let's take a time out, we'll come back and we'll find out what you know, what they're up to
0: and what is their end game. Mel Madison is with us, the author of Quas, It's a financial thriller. We'll tell you how to get a copy. Stay with us.
1: It's time to redefine reality. Reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet.
0: Quaz, a financial thriller. Mel Madison is the author. How do we get a copy? It's coming out early
2: 2024. Sure. So it's it's available for pre-order now, uh, wherever books are sold. You can go to the Amazons or Barnes and Nobles, uh, Walmart.com or something like that. Or you can go to your favorite indie bookseller and ask them for Quaz, a financial thriller. Uh, they'd be happy to order you a copy or uh, you know, stock it in the store maybe, uh, but it's, it should be available anywhere. Just Google clause a financial thriller, and you'll find it for sale. So we began talking about the Bank of International Settlements,
0: and it's, at least ostensibly, its stated purpose is to provide stability in the world of financial, of financial order. Is that really what they're trying to do, or do they have a more nefarious purpose?
2: Everything in their actions for decades now has uh pointed towards a globalization of economic authority and control so they as i mentioned were instrumental in the, the, the treaty of Maastricht that, that basically set the blueprint for the euro and the single currency the european central bank uh had its headquarters essentially in the bank for international settlements, as it was getting up and running before it was uh, moved. I believe it's in Frankfurt, Germany. Um, But essentially what they are now looking at is the globalization. Uh, Take the Euro uh, common currency writ large and transfer that into uh, the rest of the world and to do so through a global uh, central bank digital currency. All right. and.
0: Here in Canada, our Bank of Canada did a a survey and they said, nobody wants it. I think it was 86% of respondents in this survey, Canadians do not trust a a digital uh, currency. The Bank of Canada says, we're not interested. Um, It doesn't seem to matter though, if I'm hearing you correctly about the way the Bank of International Settlements operate, they would be what? Overruled? It will be imposed whether the governor of the Bank of Canada wants it and whether the prime minister wants
2: it? Well I think I think in quads, I lay out a way that it could happen, which is you first have to create a massive financial crisis, something that makes the the global financial crisis in 7 or08 look like a warm-up. Um, and I think what this next crisis is going to be it's essentially if if you get the dollar to collapse if, if, if you had runaway inflation in in the dollar, um and the lack of the the entire financial system of the of the world is underpinned by by the u.s treasury if that crumbled you need to replace it with something and that that's that's really when they they could seize their opportunity to step in because if if, if every bank in the world was going to go under because of the dollars collapse and uh, nobody would be able to get anything worth anything out of their ATMs tomorrow, um, you might find some of these countries that are willing. And you could, you could even do it under executive authority, emergency powers. Um, there could be ways to do it away from congressional or parliamentary uh, oversight. But I think what you're going to need if you want this to happen is you're going to need a, a global financial crisis.
0: So how will the introduction of a digital bank, central bank digital currency uh, happen? Um, wh- what will it look like and uh, how
2: will our lives change? Well, the, the BIS is at the forefront of this and they're running, they've been running projects uh, for years to put into place basically the, the economic plumbing, the rails to make actually cross border, cross border um, international, global digital currencies a reality. They have something that they call MCD, um, MCBDC bridge or M Central MCBDC bridge um, that is uh, done with the Hong Kong Monetary Authority and a number of Asian governments, where they're putting in. Uh, what they call a wholesale and a retail uh, digital currency system. So the wholesale system, you could think about it of bank-to-bank type transfers. And then the retail is for the individual. And so in in countries like China, they have a, um, a prototype digital renminbi program, in some countries, they've actually they have digital currencies now. Um, the Bahamas have one, it's called the Sand Dollar. Um, and so these digital currencies, they're happening right now, they're a reality, but you need to have the financial infrastructure to make it happen. And that's where the BIS is at the forefront of it. And you can literally go onto their website, like like a lot of these nefarious type of organizations do, they'll tell you exactly what they want to do. You just have to take the time to, to download the 35-page white papers and, and read through what they do. But they they recently re- released one a few months ago. They called a, a blueprint for a new monetary um, regime, basically. It, it, like, here's our blueprint. Here's what it looks like. And it's all based around not only the digitization of money, <laughs> but they take it a step further and they explain how they want to digitize and tokenize, they call it, assets. So that your car, you know, the title, the VIN number of your car is going to be on a blockchain. And you want to transfer that ownership of the car. You take your blockchain digital currency, and you, you know, someone else gives you that digital currency, and then the the title and everything on your assets gets transferred at the same time. Um, with with normal uh, crypto type currencies, it's all about DeFi, decentralized finance the BIS talks about creating a unified ledger. This is the terminology they use, new blueprint, unified ledger, tokenization of assets. So they're looking at a way to essentially take all of that, put it into a central system of which they have oversight of. So you can imagine if if you've got a car and, and they could go onto the system and, and transfer that ownership. Well, you know, they don't need to come and repossess it. There'll be a computer chip in there. The ownership's been changed. You walk out to, to get your car, um, you know, it, the, the government or whoever is the new owner has already got it and they're, the, and they're now the owner. So they're working on the actual uh, logistics to make this a reality and that's a huge amount of work and it takes time so it's not happening tomorrow but they're laying the groundwork as we speak
0: are all the governments involved uh with the bank of international settlements in agreement so even while ostensibly they may be geopolitically maybe at loggerheads uh iran and israel or china and the united states or russia and the united states Behind the scenes, at least at the level of the Bank of International Settlements, they're all actually in
2: agreement? Mm-hmm. I I think that if you look at someone like a Jerome Powell, he, he has stated, you know, the U.S. is and the Federal Reserve is seriously looking at digital currency. And he has said the U.S., you know, more or less paraphrasing a little that the U.S. will probably do it but that we won't be the first. We're, we're so important that you know we can't be the first ones and and we need to, to get something in place. But I think if you think about Jerome Powell and, and what he wants and what he's doing, I think you have to realize that some of these people are a little bit in a figurehead role and that there are, there are forces um, behind the scenes, just like there were forces behind the scenes with the creation of the Federal Reserve, forces behind the scenes with ownership of the Bank for International Settlements, that are trying to shape and mold this trajectory so that the figurehead leaders will have no choice but to go down this path. So it's not necessary that you have the Federal Reserve governor and the and your congressman from Arkansas on board with it. If you can create a set of circumstances where they have no other option, then that's how you get to that goal.
0: And um, the um, central bank digital currency, would it be... Um, controlled in such a way that they could go into your account, my account and decide, wait a minute, you've purchased, uh, you know, too much red meat this, uh, this year, you've gone on too many trips. Uh, your carbon footprint is too big. We're going to, um, you know, freeze your account.
2: Yes. Yes. They could use both, uh, positive incentives and negative. Um, there's been talk about that. Um, talk about um, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion type initiatives. Um, we've seen here in the United States, um, things where you know, people that have the worst credit scores that qualify for mortgages are getting lower interest rates in order to um, you know, promote different political agendas. You're seeing similar, similar things with these digital currencies where they're talking about how could, we can incentivize life changes. You know, if you do X, Y and Z, Richard, you're going to get a better interest rate on the money that you're that you're being held in your digital currency. And so there's a whole number of ways that they can then creep into manipulation and control of our lives and and even to the to the point where at one point. even though they're not talking about this yet but you can imagine like restrictions on transactions so well you've reached your limit of uh, ammunition for the month richard uh so you can't be buying any more of that um and so all of these things are things that once they they take away that cash which has been something the federal reserve has been doing since the 1960s it was in 69 when the federal reserve discontinued um 500 000, 5, 000 ten thousand dollar notes so in 1968, you could you could get ten thousand dollar bills, and you know ten thousand dollars was a lot of money then. You could you could buy a house back then for thirty thousand. You could give three bills to buy a house. You could do transactions with cash, and no one would need to know about it. And so they started in the 60s by taking away the bigger denominations. And now, you know, th- then they move to everything is through a visa card or it's through your bank ACH and nobody has cash in their pockets anymore. And now every one of those dollars and transactions is not only going to be digital, but it's going to be under the all seeing eye of these uh, of these authorities. And they're going to be able to control and manipulate your purchases and behaviors in the way that they see is best for society. Yeah.
0: Um- are they also behind the the push for a guaranteed annual income? So no one will work. You'll be given your twenty thousand international units or whatever they call this currency, and then they will control how much of that you spend and how much you have access to based on your social credit score, for example.
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, I think that the the number of ways, I think that money is so fundamental to To the way a society interacts and works, that the number of ways that this encroaches is is literally a limitless. So it could be anything from um, understanding. You know your eating habits. It could be your political donations. It could be, um, like I said, the purchases you're making, whether that's guns or ammunition or um, a gas-guzzling car. And then there's all types of ways that um, once this information and this data is out there, not only can they use it, but other organizations that could somehow access this data could use it. So that maybe an employer wants to see, well, what does this person like to buy? What do they like to do Um, you know, and, you know, just like there's a credit check, uh, you know, a lot of times, sometimes employers will run credit check these days for certain people um, before they hire them. And so you're building up this database where essentially your entire life now has been digitized. The data is out there and the people that can manipulate and control that data can manipulate and control you. Uh, We saw with the uh, trucker protest up here
0: in Canada back in uh, 2022, and those that supported the truckers, uh, their bank accounts were frozen. Maybe you were a single mom and a waitress in Vancouver. You gave $25, you know, to the cause, your bank account was frozen. Um, is this what they have in mind for us? And is this how they intend to, um, quash any future, uh, political dissent?
2: Mm-hmm. I I think it's it's just the ultimate mechanism for control. So in your example, they're freezing bank accounts. That's bad. But the trucker might still have a visa. He might still have a 100 Canadian dollars in his pocket that he could go and buy a cup of coffee. Um, Once you get this entire thing um, on a centralized unified ledger, um, you can you can you can essentially you can control food. You can control every aspect of the person's life with the entrance of a few keystrokes and there's not much that they can do about it
0: is there any stopping this at this point
2: i think so i i like to think of myself at the end of the day as having a little bit of of optimism uh i think that there is some efforts being made for alternative systems of value um i'm not someone who would tell people go run out and for example buy bitcoin Um, Bitcoin has uh, many positive attributes. It has some negative ones as well. But I think I think what you're seeing is you're seeing one group of people who want to give monetary choice. You know, maybe they create a stable coin or something else of that nature Um, might be backed by U.S. Treasuries or some people have stable coins backed by gold or silver. Um, And I think at the end of the day, um, those two metals will. Uh, be beneficial. So I think for people that see this writing on the wall, um, as I mentioned, in the short term, it's tough to say what's going to happen. But in the longer term, um, you know, you're seeing that as a as a store of value. And you could even conceivably at one point begin to see people going back to doing transactions with with coins, with silver or gold, little gold coins and saying, I don't want to be on this blockchain. I don't want to do this. I want to be able to, you know, a restaurant could open up and say, we accept silver or or things like that. Um who knows what could happen to help prevent and forestall this. But hopefully, um at the end of the day, this complete domination doesn't occur. Um like I said, I'm optimistic. but right now, um if if there's not the willingness of the people to to defend their freedom and their rights, then they will be taken away. Quaz, a financial
0: thriller coming early twenty twenty four. And it's published by Post Hill Press, distributed by Simon and Schuster. And um, Mel's website, melmadison.com, is in the episode notes. And uh, also a link where you can pre-order the book. Mel, a great pleasure. Thank you so much for this. It's uh, pretty chilling. I hope we can stop it. Thanks, Richard. A new Richard A
1: Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday.